If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. The American Crime Festival is where the world's leaders in true crime, media, podcasts, and citizen detectives are coming together in one event. November 8th through 10th, 2019 in Wildwood, New Jersey is where it's at. The American Crime Fest will include star-studded presentations and compelling panels from the world of true crime. You can watch Aphrodite Jones go toe-to-toe or beak-to-beak with Larry Pollard as they debate the owl theory in Netflix's The Staircase, based on the Michael Peterson case. I see what you did there with beak-to-beak. Go behind the scenes with your favorite podcasters, like us. Who wouldn't want to hang out with us? Listen to experts discuss evidence and their theories on notable cases. Please visit AmericanCrimeFest.com for more info. And stay tuned as personalities, presenters, and topics are added on a continuing basis. Don't miss this opportunity to meet, mingle, learn, and discuss your investigation with your favorite podcasters, true crime personalities, and other citizen detectives at the Jersey Shore along the beautiful oceanfront. So join us in Wildwood. New Jersey on November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And remember, the 8th is an exclusive, intimate VIP night for the American Crime Festival. Sign up soon for the best ticket prices. It's going to get wild in Wildwood. AmericanCrimeFest.com. so confidential i'm dr shiloh hey i'm dr scott we're back we are we are back and we are revisiting stockholm syndrome today um there's a really good reason why we're revisiting it because we it's the responsible thing to do (laughs) but not like we made any mistakes it's just the research that you continue to do after the episode opened up like really a doorway this has into been a research. weird yeah journey. we just weren't expecting yeah um so if you guys remember when we recorded our stockholm episode i think it was a stockholm episode yeah. um i had been in training that week and i was staying at scott's house that week um But I was talking about how just sort of coincidentally, I had come across a child custody evaluation report and saw that the child in the case had been diagnosed with Stockholm Syndrome. And if you remember from original episode on this, Stockholm Syndrome is not a diagnosis. There's no validated criteria for diagnosing it or saying that someone meets a criteria for Stockholm Syndrome. And there's a lot of controversy over different um, precursors that might be there to create Stockholm Syndrome, but at the end of the day, we can't even really say what it is. So we're, we're really in a big gray area, right. uh, at least as far as like research. It's not part of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There are all the examples we talked about had some overlap and common factors in their what we call etiology. Right. You know, the precipitating events that lead to this, this, the development of these very, actually very rare characteristics. Sure. And there's an overlap of what you were talking about, trauma bonding. There's an overlap with coercive control and sort of the cycle of violence. There's, There's all bits and pieces of that. But... None of the things are necessarily built on statistics like we would look at the diagnosis of depression, right? There you go. There's hundreds of thousands, probably into the millions by now, of 
the symptoms of depression. We understand it. We can quantify it. Yes. We do not have enough data at this point to quantify it. However, we can start talking about what should be done, and that's kind of what we do. Right. Right? We're looking at this. It has to start somewhere. Absolutely. Um, I think this is a really unique situation in which we're going to talk about the evolution of this term today and how it's being used in forensic psychiatry today. Um, But... It's just a, it, it just, it, to me, it was just a strange situation. And it, for me, when I was coming upon not only the one report I spoke of, but strangely later in that week, I'm sitting in this training and there's a high profile, severe child abuse case that is being discussed. And they hired a forensic psychiatrist to evaluate the children in the case. And sure enough, there up on the PowerPoint in front of me was this diagnosis diagnosis of complex trauma Stockholm syndrome. And I'm like, what is happening here? Right. And let's, I mean, for, for the benefit of our listeners, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm sure most of you understand the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, but f- just for clarification, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So an MD or a DO, a doctor of osteopathy, and I think there, I mean, and there are nurse practitioners that specialize, like psychiatric nurse practitioners or uh, physicians assistants, but they they come from a primarily a medical model, right? Right. So, and with all due respect to some of the most wonderful psychiatrists I've worked with, who are incredibly experienced and incredibly dedicated to their art and their profession, they do not have the training in multiple modalities of treatment and modalities of diagnosis that we do. We as psychologists who are non-medical professionals, the amount of clinical hours we we have to go through for diagnostic training is it's a lot. And we've talked about it in our other episode about yeah. so you want to be a psychologist. Right. That's a really great distinction to make because generally they're doing some sort of assessment, again, coming from that sort of that medical standpoint with further training in psychology, um, but they're not really doing therapy and treatment the way that we are. Um, so usually a patient would go to us for their treatment, and then they may see a psychiatrist or another MD for their medication regimen and monitoring, So because we can't do that, so we can't do both. Um, So I'm glad to hear that you've had good experiences with wonderful psychiatrists because I have not. And not that I've had a ton. I've had some bad ones, too. I've had some really bad ones. And my my only experience has been in forensics. So usually when I was working with outpatient criminal offenders who are also receiving medication from a psychiatrist from like the California Department of Corrections or whoever oversaw their parole or probation. Right. Um, sometimes things would come up um, if I was concerned about a client's well-being where I would reach out to them to help in the treatment planning. And every time that happened, and they were all males, they were complete dicks. <laughs> Just terrible people to deal with. I, I full-on had... I was... Um, concerned about a client's suicidality once and thought, you know, obviously this their psychiatrist needs to be looped into this. And he essentially said, why don't you just let me treat the patient? <laughs> it was so, I was so infuriated yeah. that they, there was a non-response from me over the phone, which is, you know, I have, a lot, but in my current position, I work with a lot of the large I work with the large county hospitals in Los Angeles County, um, triaging and, and uh, you know keeping communication open. And I understand that they uh, an, uh, an MD in that position has a lot on their plate. They are supervising a lot. I get it. I totally get it. But the unbelievable disparity between the types of interactions you can get are really mind-boggling. So there's a really big hospital up in the valley. That's a county hospital. I'm not going to name what it is. But I have this amazing relationship with two of the psychiatrists there, one of them who specializes in adolescent bipolar. I mean, he is fascinated by it. He has done this unbelievable research. He's the guy that not only prescribes the medication that is laser-focused on how 
we're going to treat manic periods in adolescents who are at the effect of their hormones. He also is completely educated on all the treatment modalities. And he wants to know about the family background. And he wants to know about the family system. And he wants wow. to know he wants to know all of that. And he has a female counterpart at the inpatient um, part of the hospital. She's the same way. And I can call and collaborate her. There's no talking down. There's nothing. It's amazing. The guy running the ER psych. Huh. Uh, Another story. I, I, I mean, it's it's like, I mean, I've I've had we've had like tight whispering, shouting matches in the hallway mm-hmm. a couple of times. It's like, yeah. So yeah, there's it's ridiculous. A, yeah, it's not. It's ridiculous because we're supposed to be all in the same play. We've all got the right. same goal. And you know what? In your case too. I don't know what his bias is, and he can certainly have a bias against. Um, uh, parolees or ex-cons or whatever he wants to call them, you still have your oath. Your job is to take care of people and to guide them towards health. I don't know that so my I client... Think that suicidality would it, probably... Or, yeah, and it, I, <laughs> I felt it was more he had a bias against psychologists and he Uh-oh. was going to tell me, let me just do it. Like, get out of here, little girl. I don't need to hear from you. What a... I know, I know, I know. So you can imagine, I'm I'm sitting in this training, I see this diagnosis up on the PowerPoint, and I'm immediately like, okay, there's an area here that I don't know about. I haven't worked with victims, so Stockholm Syndrome is probably not going to cross my plate that often. I was just sort of looking through the lens of crisis negotiations. Right. And I thought there's more I need to find out here. Uh, I really need to contact this forensic psychiatrist that was hired in this case. And so I took those past experiences and put them on a shelf somewhere and said, I'm just going to reach out to him and got the names from the name from the investigators. And the investigator said, hey, we love this guy. He was great. He had a really big job to do in this case. And we thought he was great. And I'm like, okay. I'm sure you all think each other are great, but <laughs> but let me let me see what he says. And I really humbled myself, wrote him an email and said, here's the standpoint I'm coming from. I'm I'm getting ready to do a presentation at my work. Regarding Stockholm Syndrome in a much different area, looking at hostages of uh, crisis situations, I'm but not sure I understand. <laughs> oh my God! You just you just sent off set off Siri on my watch. I'm so sorry. Siri does not understand what I'm saying. Get to the point, Shiloh. <laughs> um, basically, I explained myself and said I would love to know how this term is being used in the forensic psychiatry world. Uh, if you could help inform me, that would be wonderful. And he wrote back within minutes and said, I would love to help. Can we jump on the phone right now? Okay. See, that's amazing. And he was he was so lovely and sent me PowerPoints and sent me articles. And we had a really great conversation. And he pointed me towards some other research, which is what I'm bringing to share today. So I thought with this, this kind of opening up my eyes into an area and way in which the term Stockholm syndrome is being used in a contemporary sense, and it has evolved greatly, it really was our responsibility to sort of continue this conversation. So with that, um, we already quickly recapped that there is no actual diagnosis or validated criteria for it, and we talked about some other psychological explanations, um, different types of attachments and trauma responses, brainwashing techniques like they used with Patty Hearst, um, all essentially variations of someone going through a traumatic situation in which they're acting in a way that we might not expect someone to act. Right, because all of the, when we're looking for examples, and look, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, is like we're, we're looking at research articles in, you know, uh, psych journals, sociological journals, medical journals, but we're also looking at pop material. We're looking at social media. We're looking at ranker lists because they've got some good ideas. But like we talked about in our Folet Adu episode is like, you know, you just gave the example right there that 
I don't the, the sequelae and the precipitating events and the the sort of the crucible of emotional trauma that happens when someone is kidnapped, held against their will. There's a difference between them being held against their will and then beginning to identify with their captor versus being tortured and brainwashed. Oh, absolutely. And there's an overlap because we saw the overlap in a couple of the cases we're going to loop back around to, right. you know, like J.C. Duggar and the threats yeah. that she was under. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I just want yeah. to make that distinction. And there's also a distinction here. There will be no poetry reading in this episode. I mean, um, Christabel. <laughs> we're not going to go there. I'm, I just thought Today, that was going to be a lot so more popular. Sorry. I just, I'm so sorry. The, the fans have said they would like more, but I am going to. So I'll just be doing interpretive dance. Silently okay, good. In the background. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so this new area of applying Stockholm syndrome is really not looking at those traditional things that we think of when we think of Stockholm syndrome. And I, I always think, okay, maybe we don't have a definition for it, but we kind of know it when we see it. It's like pornography. <laughs> um, someone takes someone else hostage, and then there's some sort of bond that's formed. This is something totally different. These psychiatrists opened my eyes up to an area in which there's really a long, either already established relationship or there's prolonged entrapment happening. So, for instance, with the presentation that I was at, this was a case in which multiple children were essentially enslaved by their parents, and it's all they knew. So this wasn't a stranger that kidnapped them, but their entire lives, they were changed to their beds. They were given peanut butter sandwiches and water to drink and basically kept as slaves and just prisoners. Um, that's much different than what we think of when we think of right. Stockholm syndrome. Um, the the doctor that is doing a lot of the research is from the University of Queensland. His name is Dr. Chris Cantor. And he's really looking at this idea of traumatic entrapment, breeding Stockholm syndrome from how he's labeling it, which occurs over a prolonged period of time with a lot of extensive captive and hostage taker and or enslaver interaction, something more than just days or hours. So if I'm if I'm following you, then we really shouldn't even be calling the Stockholm syndrome. I mean, it's because because we're thinking the original event I know is not what you're talking about. Like I, know. I mean, it's fast. Both of those things are fascinating, but that's what's confusing is we're using that Very incident name so. yeah. for this okay. for this this new thing. And I agree. You know, I after doing more research and then I actually presented on the evolution of all of this yesterday. I, I'm still like I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to do. We probably should have given it another name just to keep it separate. But we're talking about a lot of very much of two different things going on. So this, he, Dr. Cantor says that the key is really prolonged and extreme traumatic stress in the situations in which he's talking about. So he really boils down that this, we did talk about sort of this primitive ethos that can be going on with individuals and their ego, if it's protective and keeping them alive another day. And he agrees with that. Um, it, I love that he brings up the point that, you know, as far as defense mechanisms, fight or flight is really pretty a, a juvenile way to think about it. There's six different mammalian defense mechanisms that we as human beings still use, some of them only in very traumatic situations, but um, fight or flight is happens to be two of those, but there's just way more variants right. there. So um, one is just avoidance of threats, just trying to avoid as much as possible. Um, another one would be uh, withdrawal or trying to escape flight. Um, another would be trying to take an aggressive defense, which, be, which would be fight. But if you talk about someone that is entrapped or enslaved, they can't fight necessarily if they're oppressor is perceived as someone who could kill them or um, someone that they would not win a fight against. Um, flight, they may actually physically not be able to flee at all. Um, and then we also talked about the layers of 
of threats of harm, like with Elizabeth Smart. And even though she's out in public and people are asking, oh, are you Elizabeth Smart? She can't respond to that or she doesn't leave or run away. Um, There's also attentive immobility, which is most like freeze. So we know there's also fight, flight, and freeze. Um, So that would be... um, I have to make a distinction here because there's two that are similar. So that one would be, if you think back into caveman days, you can't run away from the lion, you can't fight the lion, but you can freeze and hide behind a tree, and maybe the lion will pass you by. Maybe that's your best source of survival. There's another one called tonic immobility, um, and that would be, generally it's simulating that you're dead. So So playing possum. Playing possum. Um, This is also what researchers say is happening when like a rape victim just sort of freezes during their attack and there's a lot of obviously you know guilt that goes with that and they just don't know why they reacted in that way think about fainting goats like the little there's a breed of goats that when when they're startled they just go rigid they go Clonic, tonic, and yep. fall over. Just fall and over. And then wake back right up. That's you know? so adorable. Go watch fainting goat videos all day. Um, and then the the mammalian defense mechanism that really fits with someone in a prolonged entrapment situation would be appeasement. And Dr. Cantor has been able to identify that this happens in a lot of... Um, groups of primates, chimpanzees, um, where a male will, a non-dominant male of the group may do something wrong and essentially gets scolded or flogged by the alpha male in the situation. And he can't just leave the group because he'll die. Um, He can't fight him because he'll die. Um, So he comes back to this alpha male and will either act very infantile um, or actually like kind of offer himself sexually, even though it doesn't happen, but it shows... I'm a submissive Submissive, female Um, and as a part of survival to be accepted back into the group, that's something that he'll have to do. Um, They also find that it happens within tribes of humans as well, um, where maybe one group will kidnap a female from another group and she ends up then procreating with the men of the new group in order to sustain procreation and not lose her own life and there's just this sense of appeasement that's happening um so within appeasement they say that that comprises of pacification conciliation and submission so usually that defense mechanism is only found within its own species so we don't do that with um like we wouldn't try to appease a lion (laughs) to survive. Um, I guess if you have something on you that could appease a lion, go for it. But um, yeah, it it usually only happens within your own species. So it's really interesting to look at if why this is happening, why this is a trauma response, and specifically why it's a response in these situations where people are kidnapped or held hostage, if we're going to use that word, um, or enslaved. So I I talked when I talked to the doctor who who was on the phone. I didn't talk to Dr. Cantor out of Queensland. And is Cantor the one who was the one that came up with the term related it to a, as a form of post traumatic stress? Um I don't know if he came up with it, but he has done the most work in this area. Okay. Um So my question to the doctor that I spoke with was, so is this generally used and accepted in the world of forensic psychiatry as something that is a term you would put into a report? And I I know the answer is going to be yes, because he did it. (laughs) But I wanted a little bit more explanation from that. And I just want to read you a quote that he had written me back in an email. And he said, quote, the forensic recognized diagnosis is complex trauma. Stockholm syndrome is a legacy term. It's more of a shorthand term rather than a clinical description of the pathopsychological trauma reaction. And that that sort of tightened it up for me. I thought, yeah. okay, you're not using it as a diagnosis. You're putting it up there in parentheses 
for investigators to go, oh, okay, I kind of know what that is. But as mental health professionals, we know that this is complex trauma um, for a very unusual situation. Trauma is unusual in and of itself, um, but this is the rarest of the rare to be either kidnapped and held for years or to grow up in a family where you're essentially just kept a prisoner. So, um, so that that's really the evolution of how this term um, has formed lately and how it's being used now. I have a real quick case that I just want to give an example of, um, and I'm going to do this primarily from memory because my partner in the presentation yesterday was responsible for this case study. Um, but it's there's a movie called The Girl in the Box that you can see about this, and this is a crime that occurred against Colleen Stan Ugh. in 1977. Brutal, brutal. So you had a lot of material online about this. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure people have heard of this. But Colleen was 20; she was from Eugene, Oregon, and she considered herself an expert hitchhiker. It's just yeah, that's how people did it in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she was hitchhiking from Oregon to California. And the day that she was kidnapped, she had actually passed up two rides because they were lone males, and she did not have a good feeling about it. And then a van came along that had a man, a woman, and a baby in a car seat. And she thought, being an expert hitchhiker, this seems harmless. Yeah, this is this is the safest way to go. Right, safest way to go. How many times are you going to see that? So, so Cameron and Janice Hooker are the married couple that picked her up. Cameron was twenty three. Janice was nineteen. So, Colleen, the victim, is actually a little bit older than the wife. And little did Colleen know was that. Cameron was a complete sexual sadist. Um, he had lots of rape and torture and BDSM fantasies that he was actually acting out on his wife. They were role-playing a lot of this, and she got fed up, and they had... it. it eventually, they had two daughters together, um, but she, they came up with a plan, and she said, you can capture someone and have a slave to be able to torture, but you cannot have sex with her. You'll have sex with me, but you'll do all the foreplay torture with them, and I will help you with this. So that was their little arrangement that they came to. So, yeah. So, um, so they, they kidnap Colleen and Colleen is immediately put in what is referred to as the coffin. It's a box that is not much bigger than her body and it fits perfectly under their waterbed. So she is actually closed up in this box and shoved under the bed. And this is where her sensory deprivation starts. Um, There's also, aside from the coffin, there's a head box that um, you can find pictures of online. But essentially, it looks like something from the movie Saw, where there's a hole in the bottom, some hinges that open it up, and it's a box that would literally just go around her head. He constructed all of this himself, and because he was a, at 23, he was already a skilled carpenter. Right, right, yeah, that was his his tradecraft. So right away, the, the... the sensory deprivation begins. There is torture where she's beaten, she's electrocuted, she's burned, she is hung by her wrists, um, confined up to 23 hours a day, essentially when he's not torturing her, she's confined. Um, and then he eventually ends up crossing the line to where he's not just torturing her and then having sex with his wife, but he ends up raping Colleen. Um, And that begins. So little by little, um, they let her have a little bit more freedom. There are threats still going on throughout all of this, threatening to kill her family. He says that he is part of a syndicate called The Company that will hunt her family down and kill them. Um... But, again, they allow her out to do some things. They start letting her babysit their children, um, cleaning the house. 
but once again, before people get too drawn into that direction of why didn't she run, this is a very young woman. This is a before a time where you could access information on the Internet. If you were even interested in doing that, the idea after she's been tortured that he is part of the, what was it, the syndicate, the, yeah, company, the company, the company, you know, he, he put that into her head. It's so there is no alternative. You're in like, I, I care about my family. I can't let them leave. Right. And that's a, that's a very common trait that's used in these particular situations is at the case in point, which we speak about last time was Elizabeth smart. Right. I will go back and I will kill your family. Yeah, and and you also pointed out another piece that we talked about with Patty Hearst that she is getting no other information. So it's right. it's completely the the world view of her captors, and it had to be incredibly um, confusing that there's also a mother of two daughters that is engaging in this too. You know, it's not like she was just captured by a, a man yeah. and that's it. There's a household here. Um, so he makes her sign a contract, essentially agreeing, quote unquote, agreeing to be the slave that she won't run away. Um, and I think this is just another tactic to make her feel like she is a little step closer to being a part of having a say in this, that she's having to sign a contract. Um, But from sort of here on out where they start letting her out and giving her these privileges, there's a lot of compliance by her. She is eventually, so she's with them for a total of seven years until 1984, but she's allowed to exercise outside the home to go for a jog. She's allowed to get a job outside of the home as a cleaning person. Um, So again, these are opportunities to be away from them that, that and to you leave, would think she would right? take advantage of to right. leave, but she didn't. Um, he has let her have some sort of communication with her family this entire time, so the family doesn't think that she's completely dropped off the radar. She was hitchhiking to California, so that's you know where their mind is at. But he eventually lets her go and visit her family, and she visits them by herself first, and the family is terrified to say anything, thinking they're going to lose her for good. She's just going to run away. Right. And she is a bit underweight. Her clothes are pretty tattered, but she says that she's living with this family and things are fine. So they let her leave. Well, he then returns with her, saying that he's her boyfriend, and they have dinner with her family. There's actually a photograph taken by her parents of them where she's got her arms flung around his neck. They're both smiling. They look like boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and all this time, this horrific stuff is going right. on at home. Um, so at some point, the arrangement between Cameron and his wife changes. He says, okay, I've, I've started to have sex with Colleen. You can have sex with other men if you want. Um, but she, Colleen was really sort of starting to take on this role as kind of a second wife in the home because she has duties with the children. There's more freedoms. Um, and obviously he's... Which means she's interacting with his... His wife. His wife oh, yeah. more often yeah. as well. So, yeah. so now, now we're going to see a, a secondary relationship start to right. develop. Right, secondary relationship. So after a while, his wife doesn't like that. And so she starts helping Colleen plan her escape um, and does. She, she tells her this isn't right. You do not need to be here anymore. You need to... Um, tell the police what happened and I will help you. And so after seven years, I mean, let's, let's just, we'll just, we'll, we're going to just kind of gloss over the fact mm-hmm. that you sat there while your husband tortured the right. shit out of her for years right? and had sex. And there's, I think there's a report even that she was at one point strung up by her wrists in the bedroom after a torture session. And, he had sex with his wife. Yeah, they would know, have at, sex in front of her. In front of her, you right. know, under, like at, at her feet. Uh, yeah. Just Ugh. horrible. I know, I know. So um, Colleen escapes. She goes to the authorities. He ends up getting convicted, and his wife testifies against him for immunity. Um, he gets 104 years. 
good old California. He came up for parole in 2015, but he was not granted parole. So he is not out. But um, Colleen grew up to be an advocate for victims. She is married. She has children. Um, She went on to get uh, further her education. I think the wife also started doing victim advocacy work after lots of therapy of her own. Hmm. Um, no, she also went at when, I think, was it Janice? I think Janice yeah. is the wife's name. Uh-huh. Janice and Colleen develop a plan for her to leave. She gets her money for a bus ticket to go back to Oregon to be with her family. Janice has told her that the company doesn't exist. Right. 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 Which was the thing that seemed to be one of the turning points where she could sort of herself start to unpack this Stockholm syndrome, as it were. However, she was still so scared of him. She didn't go to the police for quite a while. There's a big break in between her returning to her family and a report being made. There is. And then if you even look further down the line, she was writing him love letters while he was in prison for a period of time. Not Not a long period of time. There's, I think there were like four letters, um, if I'm remembering that correctly, but she was still very much attached to him and he was very um, emotionally broken up by her leaving. How could she do that? I know. Um, But if we're looking at sort of the previous different types of definitions we've talked about with Stockholm Syndrome, you know, some of those, even the one posed by the FBI, was that not only does the hostage develop feelings for the hostage taker, but vice versa. That in some cases, well. I in, would say. I wouldn't right. say in all. But. No, totally, totally. And now, a word from our sponsors. The, the longer duration of this entrapment, as well as the more frequency of interaction and stress and torture, that it develops into this appeasement survival I'm going to live another day. So another going back to those mammalian responses that you were talking about that breaks down fight or flight into more understandable bite-sized pieces. It's that it's appeasement. Correct. So that's interesting because when you, when you say that I go back to being a family systems therapist and I think about when a parent is a rager or an alcoholic or has um, labile mood swings, everyone learns around to to adjust their behaviors around that parent. We call it walking on eggshells, yeah. right? So you develop hypervigilance. Hypervigilance being on edge all time means years and years of chronic low to moderate levels of anxiety. You're constantly trying to read that person. Constantly trying to read the room. In fact, it's interesting. There's a theory out there that I find fascinating that a lot of people that work as psychics and clairvoyants come from hypervigilant households and they actually have developed really great skills at instantly reading the emotions in the room, wow. and that's what gets misinterpreted right. as like this supernatural power. Uh, there's no real research on it. I find it a fan. I find it a very interesting theory. Right. But think about the long term repercussions of growing up in a hyper vigilant situation or being caught and imprisoned in a hyper vigilant situation. So your body is constantly dripping and squirting adrenaline into Mm -hmm. your system. It's like it's releasing cortisol. Cortisol is affecting your brain. It's affecting your metabolism. It's what we see with combat veterans coming back. their, Their switch that goes on in a fight or flight scenario doesn't get turned off. Right. It's just in the on mode all the time. So that's a great, that's a great um, way to also apply this because um, Dr. Cantor talks about also stalking victims may to appease assailants or known assailants they may offer themselves up sexually at some point and it sort of continues the cycle of violence or an interpart or um, intimate partner violence to where it's counterintuitive but it's appeasing um, to reduce harm in the long run so having said that yes I think you touched on a really important thing that it seems like we're talking about two different things almost that maybe have some overlap and naming 
this Stockholm syndrome feels much different from the original term and how it first came out. And I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm left with with this because I wanted very much to give my audience at work sort of what does this mean for us? <laughs> like the so what? My my dissertation chair always said, Shiloh, when you're asking a question, what, give me the so what? Why is this important? Why is this important to research? Um, and so for hostage negotiators, I'm not sure what the so what is. Um, I came back to some considerations when we see how victims are acting, and you and I have touched on this a lot, that... One, maybe Stockholm Syndrome is a lay term that just really doesn't apply to crisis or hostage situations anymore, um, if we're going to take sort of this contemporary view of where it's going now. Two, I think we should move away from judgment, from thinking about how someone should be acting. So if we're being frustrated that there is a hostage in a situation that seems to be caring about the hostage taker, um, and maybe not so friendly towards police because they think they're going to be killed, like we saw in the Stockholm incident, um, we shouldn't be saying, no, they shouldn't be acting like that. If it's oh, trying definitely. to survive, absolutely. if it's just a response to this very traumatic situation, who are we to say? Just like when we say that all the time of the husband's not acting right, the mom's not acting right. The well, and that to me is a that actually is the so what. The so what is that this is a factor if there is if there are hostages involved in this crisis negotiation or hostage negotiation, then that's a wild card of not knowing where those cap uh, captees. Captives. Captives. Sorry. This is blank. <laughs> um, we don't, you don't know where they are. Right. So, I mean, it seems like, you know, Stockholm as a, as a term would better be pulled down to uh, short-term situations. You know, let's give it a time span. Let's say, you know, four hours to three months. I mean, right. know, really expand it out. Of Individuals who have no previous connection. There's an ulterior motive beyond holding the captives. The captives are the secondary gain, right? For what the primary motive is, what their needs are. What Let's call that. I mean, like other demands. Yeah, I, I, yes, absolutely. And I think that's where where you and I have been going. Is okay. Maybe we just need to propose a criteria here. Um, and I think duration is something you have to think about and hostage behavior and what the motives are um, of the perpetrators. But hostage behaviors can always affect a negotiation and a situation. Thank God they are extremely rare. The majority of the barricaded subject suspect situations we go out on, there are no hostages. Um, so I think that comes back to something we've also talked about time and time again. It's just really hard to study. If it's not happening very often, right. it's really hard to study. So um, I also love just keeping in mind not confusing empathy and compassion with an unhealthy attachment like we spoke about, I think, in the last episode, that just because someone is connecting with the bad guy for the purpose of making sure everyone stays calm and we get out of here alive, there's nothing wrong with that. If they're they're in there in the moment, they know what's going on. Right, because that also, that, that cap door is not representative of that single solitary event. There's a reason he or she got to that point, right. and most likely it's a criminal history. You know, one of the things about this particular, the Colleen Stan example you use, is that after it was said and done and he was put in prison, Janice came forward again and said, hey, by the way, he killed, he murdered his first attempt at a slave and gave a name. The name corroborated with somebody who had disappeared, but because they were never able to find a body, they've never pursued right. charges against that. Right. Now, it may very well help keep him from 
being paroled when it comes up. I think it comes up again in 2030. Mm. I, somebody like that, I, I sincerely doubt he's yeah. ever going to get out. I don't Because so. I, I have people, I have good friends that actually do those evaluations, the, the possible parole evaluations. He's not going to. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. But, you know, we do this all the time. We read an article and it, it, even, you know, some of the really funny memes out there where it's like, what a dumb bitch. She did that. <laughs> And uh, that's the always sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> meme. Oh yes, when he's yes. in the car, dumb bitch. Yes, <laughs> she touched the doorknob or whatever. Yeah. Um, but as professionals, obviously, even more important to say, hang on, these victims don't have the training or the ethics or the professional experience that I have. And you know what? Who knows what the fuck I would do in I don't that know situation? What I would do. Like, I, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, and I think group dynamics is another thing to look at when we're talking about groups of hostages. Why does one sometimes become sort of the leader? Um, there's just so many interesting. Did I ever tell you what the Dan, the conversation that Dan and I had about nine eleven? No. About one of the flights. This fascinated me because you know my husband is he he's a production designer in uh, motion pictures, and he is sort of an artist at heart, but he's like got this incredible, he's just a really cool guy. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to have him. And, you know, it's there's nothing better than being with somebody that you have really great conversations with. And I remember, you know, the night of 9-11 and us just sitting in front of the television and trying to take it all in. And over the weeks and months of just sort of digesting it and not knowing what to do because it was just this major, major event. And I think... As the details came in, was it flight 357? Was it, it was three something. Okay. So one of the things that we know is that was a time when it was, the flight was so low level, people were actually able to get a cell phone signal and they were calling and they were trying to contact their loved ones. And that's how some of the information was getting through. And, you know, it was one of those things we were going, well, what would you do in this situation? And Dan answered Immediately, And this was before I was in the field. I was still in, in casting. And Dan goes, I would pick up my luggage and use it as a shield. Every, if everybody had been able to pick up their luggage and throw it at those attackers yeah. or use it as a barricade in front of their body and just rush them, it might have made a difference. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't saying that, like, oh, this is what I would have done. Right, but right, it right. was an idea that, like, and I think about that all those years later because as we have these conversations, and especially, I mean, there's a PSA that was released today by Sandy Hook Promise that it will absolutely kick you in the gut. Oh, God, I don't need that. Well, I mean, it's, I, it's beautifully done, but yeah. it's about the reality of our, our elementary, middle, and high school kids having to prepare for this reality. Right. And you're watching these kids basically use school supplies mm-hmm. in ways that they can mm-hmm. protect themselves. And I think, I mean, we're, you know, I think we're just, in, we live in a, a different world where people have to be prepared well, to and, some extent. And I, yes. And, and fight I, against that fight or flight. I think it's natural to say, to think, what would I do in that situation? And to prepare for that because... Every time I get on a plane, I think about it. Every time I sit in a movie theater, I think about where I'm sitting, where the exit is. Yeah. Is my child in between me and the exit? Um, thank God you can pick your seats now. Most of the theaters I go to, and I strategize. Right, and we talk about even the Las Vegas shooter. And before, right. I think when when that had happened, that was when, and all, we know you and I have a social circle of you know, eight people that we love and care about and we're besties mm-hmm. and we hang out. And one of the things you sent all of us by, by email was an article about if you are in this situation, what can you do right. to minimize the the damage? And one of them is don't run for the exit. Right. Because like right. the Las Vegas shooter was doing, he had plans for all the exits. He was yeah. had rifles scoped on those. I went to um, the Bad Religion show about a month ago at the Palladium. And let's see, there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of us. Um, Four of us current or former law enforcement. (laughs) And I said, all right, everyone, this is the plan. If something happens, because I I think back to the... um, 
the attack in Paris and at the rock concert and just, right. you know, you're not registering is this pyrotechnics or it's so loud and where's it coming from? And we all had a plan of where we were going to meet up and where we were going to go. And then we enjoyed the show. Yeah. You know, it takes a little bit of planning, but, um, on that note, I'm currently listening to on audiobook The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. It is so rough. <laughs> it's it's by Garrett Graff. It is beautiful. It is it has um, a cast of 45 people, and essentially he has taken quotes and outlined the entire day just from people's quotes and putting all of these puzzle pieces together. And today on my way in, I was listening to it. I had I'd started listening to it on 9-11 and put it down for a little bit, but on my way in, I was listening to it, and they were reading some of the messages that were left on answering machines from people that were in the planes. Oh, my gosh. And I am, like, bawling on the way to work going, okay, I need to turn this off, so I'm ready to show up to work right now, and hopefully people in traffic aren't staring at me. Um, But it's beautiful. I highly recommend it. It's something I... You know, hope my daughter reads later on, just so she can understand what it was like. Because they don't know life before mm. or life on that day, and just get an understanding of how it impacted all of us. How the hell did we get to this topic? Well, <laughs> whoa, we we're full circle. What we do what we always do. Oh my god! Kind of please go watch videos of fainting goats or something yeah, right now. Yeah, okay? cute. And I'm, what, you know, with the, the the new discovery because I'm a big I'm a big happy animal video file on Facebook like I you know have a saved file with happy animal videos and now the ones that I've just my go to for a really bad day is otters oh. oh my gosh oh my gosh they're the coolest little, and I'm sure they're vicious killers in the wild but like they're adorable in person we got to see them in Alaska when we went on a nature cruise there were two floating along holding hands oh. next to our boat it was the coolest thing ever. I think we can. I think you can swim with them down at um, the aquarium at oh the Pacific. Gosh. So I'm going to look that Ooh, up. Let's do that. Yes. All right. That's all I have. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Though we have some announcements. Uh, so the big one is that we kind of talked about, but we haven't spent any time on it. Uh, and we posted on social media is that we are now part of Crawlspace Media. Yep. Which is just we kind sure of are. like. Wow, how did that happen? Um, It's very exciting. Very quickly, and it feels like home already. Um, Just the coolest bunch of people ever. I'm very excited. Grateful to Tim and Lance, for sure. So I booked my flight today for November in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey, for the festival. I hope we will see everybody. AmericanCrimeFest.com. Get your tickets. And... We are going to be doing a live show there. So we're yes. going to be doing a live show there with Sarah Turney, um, who's the sister of Alyssa Turney that you may know from the Missing Alyssa and Voices for Justice podcasts. That's that's kind of like the next level up for us, too. So we, you know, we really want to bring our A game um, because this is, you know, you know, working with um, Steve Hodel. Yeah, was was yeah. one of those moments of right. like, wow, this is this is the guy who 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 figured it all out about yeah. his dad. Yeah, and this is even closer. This is a two siblings. It feels different, and, yeah. you know, because it, it's something that is still unsolved to some extent. Um, unknown things could still happen with it. It feels it feels like a different tone for us to come in and speak about something that isn't just talking about, you know, a Mary Kay Letourneau case from decades ago, which is so fun and wonderful, but this feels like, oh, this is more like adulting right. <laughs> area yeah, of I mean, our yeah, commentary. Exactly. And however we can help or contribute um we're happy to you do know, that. So, and the reason I think that's important to me for working with Sarah is when we were in Chicago and we were doing our panel with Nick and Jessa from Getting Off Podcast, it was an amazing experience on so many levels. And we were, we were getting instantaneous positive feedback from the audience. I mean, when you have an audience that is on the edge of their seats and 
asking really great questions and following your narrative, you, you really know you're doing something right. But there was an experience. Oh, God. Are you going to talk about it finally? About oh, okay, good. Because good, good. I, I had to process it because I want to be respectful about this. <laughs> so. All right. This is this may be better than a poetry reading. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. But so we're up on this sort of, you know, stage platform of like the the metal sort of, uh, it's basically a portable portable stage that they've got. So we're all set up with sound and everything, and we're in the middle, no, maybe about a quarter of the way in. So the door opens up, and there's a woman who is pushing a wheelchair. And in the wheelchair is an elderly woman, you know, nicely dressed, very well put together. And I was like thinking, okay, that's like, is that a mom, daughter, or whatever that, but how cool, like, right. you know, a, 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 an other, an otherly abled individual who's into this genre and they came and they made the effort to be here. How cool. Right. So the woman pushing the wheelchair pushes the woman almost all the way up to the stage. Like she is right. The wheelchair is right by the staircase. It's in front of the front row. Right. So it's even closer to us than anybody else. Right. And the woman was interested, was, was interested. She was listening. She was completely, you know, uh, alert and oriented times three, as we would say in a site. And she's kind of, but she's not, like nodding along. She's making eye contact, but she's not sort of, she's not smiling. She's not frowning. You know, we crack a couple of jokes. She's not, she's not looking. This is a window into Scott's you guys, brain right now. I know this is you guys, this, I, Cause I didn't I, pick up on any of this. Okay. And this is where my brain goes, but she's sitting there. And as I'm talking immediately, I go, what if that is Mary Kay Latorno's mother? Jesus. And she's going to kill me or she's going to do something to us. She's going to make a gonna, scene. She's going to make a scene and like, and then, it, you know, so there's just this meta narrative of that going on in my head. So there's four of us talking back right. and forth and this is going on in your brain. Um, that, and Which is only one of many voices in my head that are, so that are hopefully not auditory hallucinations. And of course lady. it wasn't. The woman was wonderful and I got to talk to her daughter later on or, uh, or caregiver and they were they were just great and they were wonderful fans. I didn't share with them that I was like, hey, I thought you were gonna do something. You were gonna to kill me. me. <laughs> God, such a grandiose sense of I self. Know. I think I'm so special. That was the because f- you didn't tell me that for weeks. Because I, I was so embarrassed. And I'm like, what? Yes, I vaguely remember this woman in a wheelchair, but what the fuck? <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, I wish there was video. If someone has video footage, like, please send it to us. So, so we can zoom in on my face. <laughs> I get to see you like looking out of the corner of your eye oh. to the right to this poor woman. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's so funny. Okay, so crazy. I think we're done here. I think we're done. <laughs> oh wait, we yeah. got our own event coming up. Oh, Plug Jesus. Event, How did we not do that? I know. We have an event here in Los Angeles. <laughs> There's just Please. so much going on. Okay. Um, yes. Our wonderful friend, God, everything harkens back to the True Crime Podcast Festival, um, Rebecca Sebastian of Yellow Tape True Crime Trivia and the new podcast Dialogue is coming to LA. We convinced her. It only took a couple of months to convince her to come out. Um, but she's coming to Los Angeles. We're going to do a live event of trivia as well as she's going to interview us for dialogue live. So it's going to be at the friend bar in Silver Lake. In Silver Lake. And um, it's a great venue. There's not a cover charge. It's adorable. It's free. It's going to be so much fun and kickback and trivia. Oh my God. The trivia game is her so trivia game, fun. You guys She's the best host. It's it's almost as if she's doing a character, except she's not because she's actually that sweet. I know. She's just but like so a cool. little sassy. She's very sassy. Like, what did you call her? Kindergarten teacher? <laughs> yeah, she's very corrective. <laughs> you get something wrong. I you, you know you've gotten something wrong, it. but I I think she's amazing. She's amazing. So um, there there may be some other meetup opportunities that weekend, um, but that's definitely going to be our show. So that is October Sunday, October twentieth. Yes. Um, check our social media you can find everything about it it's just a lot going on in the fall so and there's some we have a great circle of acquaintances within the podcast industry that we have already made commitments to be there we're not doing a huge cover charge so please 
yeah. come out, have a couple of drinks. The food is supposed to be great there as well. It's supposed to, and it's a great little venue. So it's we'd love to see you. Perfect location. All right. Thank you guys. We will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye folks. Bye-bye. show in New York City. In those live shows, I cover the who, what, and when of popular true crime cases, but I can't always deep dive the way I'd like to. That's where this podcast comes in. Dialogue picks up where yellow tape leaves off. Each week, I'll be interviewing professionals, podcasters, and players in the true crime space. We'll attempt to answer the why of true crime, why we love it, why it happens, and What are we even talking about when we talk about true crime? And yeah, we'll probably play some true crime trivia too. So, are you ready to explore the heart of true crime with me? I think we'll have a killer conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Dialogue on iTunes today and download the premiere episode of Dialogue wherever you listen to podcasts starting July 31st.